Out front next, breaking news. Israel ramping up the fighting in southern Gaza tonight as a near communications blackout hits the entire Gaza Strip. This on a day that CNN's producer, Ibrahim Dahman, learns his family in Gaza has been killed, his childhood, his childhood home destroyed. And Donald Trump trying to connect with black voters as he rails against the justice system as Biden sees his support among that same group of voters taking a dive. John King out front at the Magic Wall and vanished. A reporter who covers sensitive topics now missing in China tonight. Is she the latest person to disappear for crossing Xi Jinping? Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Aaron Burnett. Out front tonight, invading southern Gaza. Israeli troops are now making their way south after capturing large portions of northern Gaza. We've got some video here which appears to show an Israeli tank on one of the few roads that actually runs from north to south in Gaza, a road used by those who've had to flee their homes. Now, these images are just about three miles north of Khan Yunis, a city that Israeli Defense Forces had originally told people living in Gaza City to go to, to go to for their safety. But now Israel is telling tens of thousands, if not a lot more, it's unclear how many people are still there to once again evacuate, saying parts of that area are now a, quote, battlefield. I'm going to warn you that this video is graphic. What you're looking at, though, is what the Red Crescent, which is on the ground, says uh, is them trying to help the injured. They claim that this was a strike on homes in southern Gaza. We did see a big uh, crater uh, actually near the Rafah crossing overnight as well. Those once again fleeing for their lives, it is a confusing, terrifying, complicated road to safety. The IDF is actually dropping leaflets like what you see there on your screen. Now, you may notice, obviously it's written in Arabic, but you see what we're zooming in there? There's a QR code. That QR code is actually what directs people where to go. Now, I mean, it, it is a little bizarre to think about that for, for even just on the face of it, but there is also another problem. Just on the actual reality, there's a near total internet blackout in Gaza tonight, which would make it completely impossible for anyone to scan the QR code and pull up the instructions on where to go. Now, to give you just an idea of how bad this communications blackout is at this very moment, we actually tried to tape an interview with the Red Cross spokesman in Gaza tonight, but we were unable to get a connection. So there's no phone right now, definitely no QR code links. But if anyone saw the QR code before the blackout or, or after the blackout, if it ends, this is what the IDF evacuation map looks like. That's what comes up. Certain neighborhoods are highlighted, telling people where to go, and then there's those arrows. I mean, this is confusing especially given that more than half of the trip, home to more than 2 million people, is now under evacuation orders. Reminder, 25 miles long, 6 miles wide at its widest. From the entire north now under evacuation order to a growing section of the south, the UN Secretary General tonight saying there is nowhere safe to go in Gaza, which is a sad reality for so many, including our brave producer, Ibrahim Dahman. You know him. He had sent us exclusive daily dispatches from Gaza as he was there in North Gaza and then trying to flee to get his family safe, uh, safely out of harm's way. He tells us that tonight, one Israeli strike yesterday hit his aunt's house where nine of his relatives were trapped. They were killed, all of them. Another strike destroyed his childhood home. We're going to have much more on Ibrahim's story in just a moment. And we've got Jeremy Diamond tonight out front live along the Israel-Gaza border and Ben Wiedemann in Jerusalem. I'm going to begin with you tonight, Jeremy. Israel is now expanding that ground offensive in southern Gaza tonight, of course, the place where so many millions had been told to go for safety. What are you learning? 
That's right, Aaron. Israel is expanding its ground operations inside southern Gaza over the last few days. But today, the first tanks have now been spotted inside southern Gaza. This as I met up with Israel's top tank commander to talk about the central role that tanks have been playing in this war in Gaza and that they will continue to play in this southern offensive. As Israel expands its ground offensive into southern Gaza... I think it's no more question if the tank is uh, relevant or not relevant for this war. Brigadier General Hisham Ibrahim, the head of Israel's armored corps, says tanks will once again be central to Israel's urban warfare strategy. Our tanks is everywhere. In the urban area, uh, when you attack, you have, uh, in the beginning, the tanks firing and uh, uh, attack uh, first, uh, and then just the infantry come uh, and uh, be close with the tanks. Israeli tanks were at the tip of Israel's offensive into northern Gaza in late October, clearing the way for infantry troops to move into dangerous and densely populated cities. So you're using the tanks to clear the area yeah, yeah. so that infantry troops can move yeah, in? Exactly. Ibrahim says this kind of coordination is a lesson learned from Russian failures in Ukraine. We saw that where the Russians fought only with tanks alone, they were more vulnerable. This combination of combined power overcomes almost every problem on the battlefield. Israeli tanks are pushing through, not around, residential buildings, reducing entire neighborhoods to rubble to minimize the risk to Israeli troops. But that also means that you have to destroy a lot of residential buildings. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. We're firing for the buildings, we uh, destroy, but we uh, make sure that this building is empty from uh, citizens, and uh, we just destroyed what we uh, have to destroy. And we've seen a lot of civilians die in but, Gaza. Yeah, but we, we make sure before that we attack Gaza, that the citizens go uh, south. You know, this is war. Israeli tanks have also become a top target. They have RPG and they want to destroy the tank because for them, this is the win picture. In a series of propaganda videos, Hamas fighters are seen ambushing Israeli tanks. But General Ibrahim says these fiery explosions often show the tanks' anti-missile systems in action. Hamas tanks have gone out of commission. Zero. Zero. We have tanks that we take to us maybe some, a few days to fix them and they go back to the battlefield. But destroyed, zero. Zero. His troops, though, are paying a heavy price. The first RPG that was fired hit the tank, penetrated it, and I got hit by the shrapnel. During a visit to wounded soldiers, General Ibrahim says his corps has suffered more casualties per capita than any other. This is because we are on the front line. The tank corps is the corps that is winning this war. This is our war. And Israel is expected to continue relying heavily on its tank forces as it pushes into the south. But General Ibrahim told me that he expects the fighting to be much more complicated. Hamas has had weeks now to prepare its defenses in the south, and they have also been drawing lessons from their fights with the Israeli forces in the north. Aaron. All right. Jeremy, thank you very much uh, for that and seeing that up close, the tank warfare.
hand-to-hand as it is there. And as we mentioned, CNN journalist Ibrahim Dachman learned that at least nine of his relatives were killed in an Israeli airstrike on Daman's aunt's house in northern Gaza yesterday. These are images of the aftermath of that strike. Daman's childhood home in Gaza City was destroyed in another strike. Now, those of you who, who watch the program regularly will remember Ibrahim because almost every night since the war began, we were sharing his exclusive dispatches of his nearly month-long effort to escape from Gaza with his young family, including this harrowing moment when they were speeding through a Gaza road amidst massive explosions. Ibrahim, of course, is now out of Gaza, but even hearing that, I get goosebumps. Well, last month, he and his family were finally able to evacuate Gaza. They crossed into Egypt to their incredible relief. They are safe, but now at least nine members of his family are dead in an airstrike. Ben Wiedemann, who has worked with Ibrahim Dafan extensively over the years, knows him incredibly well, is out front. So, Ben, what more can you tell us? Well, I spoke to Ibrahim this morning, and uh, Ibrahim's been through a lot, and he tries to put on a brave face. Uh, But he told me he's lost everything. He's lost relatives. He's lost his childhood home. He doesn't know about his his other home uh, in Gaza. All his memories, he says, uh, he told me, are gone. And uh, he just is, is sort of in a daze. I mean, really what he's doing now is just focusing on work. In fact, he told one of my colleagues who advised him after hearing the news of the loss of so many members of his extended family that he should take the day off just to get away from work. But he responded that, you know, work helps burn the hours. Work distracts me uh, from the fact that not only has he lost so much, but he still has parents inside Gaza. And that is really occupying his mind around the clock. And it's very difficult for people to get out of Gaza. And in fact, very difficult for people to get from one part of Gaza to another, let alone get out of Gaza altogether. So he's, he's, he's struggling. He's struggling, but as I said, he's trying to distract himself uh, by work. And you know, I've, no, I've known Ibrahim since he had a full head of hair. He was just a kid. And he's always been enthusiastic about the work. And when he had got a full-time position with CNN, I've never seen a colleague so happy and proud. Everything that he did, he put his you know, entire soul into the work. And so you know, when I heard, and many of us heard what had happened to him, to his extended family, you know, we all reached out to him. I think he was overwhelmed with the amount of phone calls and messages uh, he received. So I, mean, I, you know, I, just, I hope if he's watching us now, he understands that we all care about him and we all hope that 
his family that's still in Gaza is safe, that they can survive this war and he can get back to work in his home. And I know he has put, you know, as you say, is his soul into it and made such incredible sacrifice and his willingness to share this and to document it for the world to see uh, with his family took great courage with his children out there and, and his wife. All right, Ben, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. And I want to go straight now to the Israeli Defense Forces spokesman, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Kunrikis. And uh, Colonel, um, thank you for being on the program again. So you just heard Ben talk about Ibrahim Dachman, our producer, uh, who had documented day by day his uh, leaving northern Gaza, getting to the south, getting to Egypt, his extended family killed in a strike yesterday, at least nine of them. And um, you heard Ben talking about Ibrahim. Ibrahim said one other thing about his relatives, Colonel, I wanted to share with you. He said, and I quote Eve, they were extremely peaceful and simple people. They have no affiliation with any organization or group. What do you say to him and his family with this grievous loss in an Israeli airstrike this weekend? Yeah, I am. Uh, I saw the footage, and I've actually followed uh, his um, documentation of uh, the 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 ordeal that his family went through. I saw it on CNN, and as I was waiting for interviews. A few weeks ago, I saw that, and I feel for the man. I'm sure that he's uh, his family, and I trust that what he says is true, that they were not affiliated. And it appears as if they are the unfortunate and sad um, consequences of a war. Uh, I don't know the specifics of where the house was and uh, what happened there. I don't know what impacted uh, but uh, I can say that if they were not affiliated with any terror organization, then they were not the target and not the enemy. And at this stage, I cannot uh, provide anything but um, words of uh, sympathy to him and his family. And I hope that he's safe. And I hope that other civilians are safe. And I hope that and Israeli civilians who are mm -hmm. out, forced out of their homes, 250,000 of them, are safe. And that they'll be able to return to their homes at the end of this war. Colonel, um, of course, the, the reality of it is, is the horrible tragedy that touches Ibrahim now personally is touching so many. Um, according to the AFP, senior Israeli military officials have said around two civilians have been killed for every Hamas fighter that you have successfully killed in the Gaza Strip. So that's two civilians for every terrorist. Can you confirm that? Yeah, I can confirm the report, uh, and I can say that uh, if that is true, and I think that our numbers will um, be corroborated, if you compare though that ratio to any other conflict in urban terrain between a military and a terrorist organization using civilians as their human shield and embedded in the civilian population, you will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive, and perhaps unique in the world. Uh, I understand that there are civilian casualties and I understand that footage and coverage goes towards emotions uh, and to, to cover those civilian casualties. But what I want to say is that we will get those figures out and they will be official and on record by the IDF with the yeah. name behind it. And then we will be able to say uh, and to back up afterwards with names and numbers that we are indeed targeting the terrorists. We are not after the civilians, and we are going into great efforts in order to keep it that way. 
And uh, it is yeah. it is, of course, hard to comprehend two for one. But when you say you're going to great efforts, Colonel, one of those efforts is those IDF directions, which I don't know if, when you actually plugged in, but I had shared with anyone watching at the top of the show, the directions for evacuation yeah, I saw that the, you've put I out. Saw yeah. what you spoke about All right. So, you know, there's the QR code, right? Um, and then if you click on that, which you can't right now because there's a, a blackout, but if you were to click on it and you were to see where to go in this in this urban area. Tiny little parcels, block by block, numbers, I suppose. It's hard to even read it. Um, how do you really expect anybody to, to get that, to click on it, to see it, which they can't do right now, again, because the blackout, and then to follow the directions and to get somewhere safely? I mean, is that, is that reasonable? Um, I think, Aaron, that it may not be perfect, but it is the best thing that we can do. Uh, the situation is that for weeks we have designated a humanitarian zone and we have been asking civilians to go there. Unfortunately, civilians, for various reasons, because they're under the control of Hamas, because international aid organizations have channeled them there, many other reasons, have not yet gone to the humanitarian zone, which I think is very unfortunate. The reason why we made that or designated that humanitarian zone is because it's one of the few areas where Hamas isn't embedded above and below ground and therefore a relatively safe area because we would have no interest in fighting there because Hamas isn't there. And that's what we've been asking all along. The attempt or what you showed on the map, and I can agree that it's not perfect, but by the, by the way, I contest the fact that there's a blackout because I saw lots of cameras out when our hostages were being returned and i saw lots of live footage mm -hmm. from those occasions as well well so tonight though tonight though there is i was actually going to interview the spokesperson for the red cross we were unable to get communications colonel for 45 minutes yeah, i mean there's a widespread the blackout tonight i've seen the spokesperson of unicef on cnn and every other living network and i think that there isn't really such a blackout because evidently he has service and many others have and there's video coming out Listen, I understand that it's not perfect, but this is what we are trying to do. We're mm -hmm. trying to reach out to Palestinians. We're trying mm -hmm. to inform them ahead of time where fighting is going to be in order for them to be able to take precautions and move from where there's going to mm -hmm. be fighting. I don't know how else we can uh, square that circle of defeating Hamas where Hamas is and minimizing civilian yes. casualties. I if anybody with military experience has an idea, we're open for suggestions, but it has to square in defeating Hamas, mm -hmm. not seizing operations and letting Hamas win, but defeating Hamas and minimizing collateral or damage to civilians. Colonel, one final point on the blackout that, that, that has been going on the past few hours, and the Red Cross was there earlier, there was video earlier, then this black, and that's actually why we had the interview scheduled with the Red Cross. Then the blackout affecting uh, most of Gaza has been in effect. Do you know if it's been resolved? Do you know why it's in place? I am not aware of a blackout. I am aware of uh, problems with coverage in local areas. There have been reports of it, but I see live streaming by Palestinian propagandists from various er areas, including from 20 minutes ago. I watched it live uh, of a very known, uh, notorious Palestinian propagandist. He was uh, live on TikTok. So there is Wi-Fi, maybe it's not specifically uh, with uh, the Red Cross that you were speaking with, but I am factually mm. aware that there is live internet services in Gaza. Not perfect and not 5G Manhattan speed, but there definitely is international in internet service.
All right. Well, Colonel Conricus, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for having me. All right. The next U.S. terror plots, police in Las Vegas arresting a 16-year-old and find bomb-making materials and an ISIS flag. And that's not all. We have more disturbing details next with this reporting. Plus, John King tonight at the Magic Wall with the latest out-front battleground, looking at why more and more black voters are saying this. I do not feel confident as a black man in this country to vote for Joe Biden. And the mother of one of the three Palestinian college students shot in Vermont is my guest. Her son, Hisham Marwatani, now paralyzed from the chest down. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tonight, U.S. terror plot foiled. A 16-year-old boy arrested after Las Vegas police say he was ready to launch ISIS-inspired terror attacks. Police also saying they made a series of disturbing discoveries at his home, including ISIS propaganda and bomb-making materials. Let's go straight to our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. So, John, I mean, you know, you hear this in the context of, uh, you know, what we're what we're hearing uh, from Israel, from from Gaza. Uh, how real, how real and how imminent was this threat? Well, how real uh, was dictated by really the boldness of the post that they saw placed in one of these message boards, which said, peace be upon all the brothers who see this. I am here to announce that I will be starting lone wolf operations in Las Vegas against the enemies of Allah. I ask you to make dawah for victory. I'm a supporter of the Islamic State, and I will make sure the Zionists in this city know it. So with that as a starting point, the Las Vegas Metro Police, the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force working together, were able to trace from that message board to a location where Deputy Chief of the Las Vegas Metro Police, Dory Corrin, will tell us what they found. Our search revealed numerous items of concern to include terrorism propaganda and materials that indicated the suspect's intent to commit an act of terrorism. Some examples that were recovered included a handmade ISIS flag, which you can see a photo of, ISIS and Al-Qaeda propaganda, radicalization materials, and general guidance for conducting a terrorist attack, as well as components of building components for building an improvised explosive device and bomb making recipes and instructions. So Aaron, that gets to the heart of your question. How yeah. imminent was it? So there's stages to this. It's radicalization, then mobilization towards violence, which is taking actual steps. Um, according to authorities, what they found in there was everything you needed to make a bomb except the explosive. So that's a, a timer, a power unit, a detonator. Um, and the research. So this is that they right were up finding, to the line. 
Right. And the research they were finding into the mm-hmm. chemical components like TATP, which you can buy in any big box store by putting together three or four things, um, told them that this could be imminent. The one thing that they didn't indicate was that he had chosen a particular target. A target. All right. So the, the context here is knife and hammer attack reportedly carried out on behalf of ISIS at the Eiffel Tower. Uh, you had officials saying they thwarted a plot by two teens to ram a truck bomb into one of those uh, Christmas, Christmas markets in Germany. So, I mean, we're st- I, I, I remember years ago, right after Brussels, after Paris, uh, the Bataclan, we, we were hearing things like this, right? Remember in Lyon, it, it, it feels like that. So it is like that. And the driver here in the threat picture is the images that are coming in from Gaza and ISIS is already natural and well-developed talent for creating dramatic propaganda. Now with this imagery of suffering, destruction, death, they're able to say, you know, you have to rise up. The remarkable thing here is the truck bomb targeting the Christmas market in, West, uh, in Westphalia in Germany was put together by a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old. In Las Vegas, we're seeing another 16-year-old. Um, in Paris, we saw a 26-year-old man But this was his second time around. He had been charged earlier and served time in an earlier terrorist plot. So we're going to see this churning for a while. Yeah, and it seems to be stirring up. All right, John Miller, thank you very much. Very sobering tonight. And out front next. Getting ahead with the president, Joe Biden, who's putting in the work for black America. Why Biden is spending time wooing back voters who were once the most reliable Democrats. John King at the Magic Wall with his latest in our series, The Battlegrounds. And George Santos apparently has already found a new job. Hi, Katie. Um, Thank you for the love. Thank you for the kindness. You know, Botox keeps you young. Fillers keeps you plump. (laughs) Tonight, Donald Trump's bid to overturn his gag order in the New York fraud case has been denied. The gag order now in place, at least through Trump's anticipated testimony on Monday. Now, of course, this is just one of several trials Trump is facing. As you know, through it all, he's been raging against the justice system, saying it's unfair, which is something he has said connects him specifically to black Americans. Do you remember after he was indicted in Georgia? Remember this? He fundraised off of this mugshot saying this. Because of what they've done, many Democrats will be voting for Trump. The black community is so different for me in the last, since that mugshot was taken, I don't know if you've seen the polls. My polls with the black community have gone up four and five times. Now, there is no evidence that the polls for Trump have gone up four or five times with black voters, but black voters' view of Biden has taken a dive, and that is tonight's outfront battleground. John King is at the magic wall. So... John, as you have dug into this in depth, what is going on with black voters and President Biden? Well, Aaron, as we go through this, let's just start with the numbers and the numbers don't lie. Take a look here. There's the president's approval rating among black voters when he took office early 2021, 87%, nine in 10 black voters approved. Follow it out. This is just this summer down to 57%. So a 30-point drop from the beginning to the beginning of the summer among black voters. That's approval rating. Now, let's translate it into some other numbers. We asked voters in a poll, right, who are you going to vote for in the election? Excuse me for one sec while I turn my back and stretch this out. In the 2020 election, nearly 9 in 10 black voters said they voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. 
Three polls, three polls last month, 73% in a CNN poll. Black voters say they'd vote for Biden. 69% NBC, 69% Fox. So seven in 10 black voters say they would vote for Biden now, down from nine in 2020. That is a problem. His support, not only approval rating is down, his support in the polls drops. And some other warning signs you might, Aaron, call these non-Biden warning signs. In the 2022 midterms, yes, Democrats did better than they thought, but black turnout was down. And just recently, Republicans took the governor's office from a Democrat in Louisiana. Black turnout was down. Mississippi governor's race, Democrats hoped for an upset. They were hoping for big, high black turnout. It was essentially flat, even down a little bit. So it's not just Biden's numbers. In elections, they see black disenchantment, you might call it. Right. And of course, it does come down to turnout, right? It's not that Trump will win that group. It's by how much. Uh, Biden wins, right, what that margin is. So where does this problem, John, matter most as you see it? What matters most is the key question. So let's just look at seven what we call presidential battleground states. In Georgia, the highest percentage, 29%, nearly three in 10 voters in Georgia are blacks. In North Carolina, a state Republicans keep winning, but Democrats think is close, it's 23%. 11% in Pennsylvania, 12% in Michigan, 7% Nevada, 6% Wisconsin, 2% in Arizona. So in the key battleground states, the black vote matters. In some states, decidedly so. Let's just go back and look at the map. Look at Wisconsin, for example. Joe Biden won Wisconsin by just over 20,000 votes. Imagine if black turnout dropped in Milwaukee or a small percentage of blacks voted for third party or voted for Trump. It doesn't take much, Aaron, if your statewide margin is only 20,000 votes. Look at Pennsylvania. Nearly, what, 3.7, 3.8 million votes cast. Joe Biden won the state by only 81,660. Imagine if black turnout drops in Philadelphia by even a small amount. Or again, a little bit for the third party, a little bit for Trump. It would make the difference. I'll give you one more example. I could give you plenty, but just look at Georgia, right? Think about Atlanta and Fulton County. Look at the margin there in 2020. That's predominantly black voters for Joe Biden. He needs it because statewide, he won by fewer than 12,000 votes. Again, just a tiny percentage. Staying home, voting for Trump or voting third party could make a difference. So, so John, just to try to understand what it is, right? There's the possibility of a macro issue, right? Oh, that it could be something like the economy, right? Then there's something maybe Democrat-driven. Is it a lack of progress on police reforms or something that, you know, that, that, that maybe black, some black voters had felt uh, had been promised and not delivered? Or is it something altogether different? Right. Republicans actually winning black voters over. Right. I mean, are you able to ascertain what the main driver is? Uh, that's why it's so complicated for the president trying to fix it, because, Aaron, it's all of the above. At least that's what we're seeing in our travels. Listen here. This is Joseph Fisher. He's a college student. We met him in Michigan. He goes to the University of Michigan, but he comes from Georgia. In the last election, he helped organize and register voters in Georgia, even though he was too young to vote. He helped Joe Biden win. He is furious at the president. He says the president should not be taking Israel's side in the Israel-Hamas conflict. And he says, sorry, Mr. President, not next time. I do not feel confident as a black man in this country to vote for Joe Biden. I do not think that he will make me feel more safe in the America that he is suiting over. And so I think it's time that we start taking actionable steps like these grassroots organizations are doing in order to create a reality where third party candidates can win. So you hear there, a young black man says he'll go third party. One more example. In Wisconsin, we met a yoga studio owner, owner, Joanna Brooks, just outside of Milwaukee. Listen here, Aaron. She says black votes have been taken for granted by the Democratic Party for too long. She says it's time that black voters look elsewhere. But this works in Biden's advantage. She listens to Trump. She saw his justices overturn Roe v. Wade. She watches him attack democracy. And she says blacks should reconsider, but not till after 2024. I grew up almost certain that my rights were guaranteed. 
right? I took it for granted. And now as I sit and watch the work of so many black folks during the civil rights movement, uh, so many women who fought for women's rights, when I see all of their work slowly being undone, that was a, a wake up call for me, for sure. Sure. You have to fight. So you heard that at the end, has to fight in 2024, especially, she says, Aaron, if it's Trump. But again, you hear the disillusionment with the Democrats. And I, I know, John, in a conversation I had over the summer with a, a, a leading uh, African-American politician in the country, he was saying one of his biggest concerns was that the Biden administration, in his view at that time, was a bit like an ostrich, that they had their head in the sand about this issue, and that they didn't want to address it because they didn't really want to admit that it was a problem. Has that changed? Is Team Biden doing something about this now? They say they are. Some of it's money. Some of it's trying to put bodies on the ground in those key Democratic cities. Let me just give you one example. Let me come back to the full 2020 map and just show you this. The Biden, the president, as we know, Aaron, has no significant Democratic primary challenge, at least at the moment. Yet his campaign, the Democratic Party, super PACs affiliated with the Democrats and Biden are spending big on ad money already. Look at this big ad, 2.4 million here, 5 million here, 5.2 million in Atlanta. Four million almost in Detroit. A lot of these ads targeting black voters in inner cities. Now, if you look at the polls, you don't see any evidence yet that it's working. But the campaign, Biden operatives say it takes time for those ads to sink in. They also say when the president has an opponent, the numbers will work. The numbers now are pretty bleak, but we'll see if the strategy works. Well, because, of course, voting begins very soon. Yes, it does. John, thank you very much. Thank you. And next, the Palestinian student shot in Vermont, now paralyzed from the chest down. His mother who has been by his side, is out front next. Plus, an award-winning journalist now disappeared in China, and she is not the first to cross the Communist Party to vanish. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, paralyzed. One of the three Palestinian college students shot in Vermont will soon be transferred from the hospital to a rehab facility. Doctors have told the family that Hisham Awartani is paralyzed now from the chest down. Hisham and two of his best friends were allegedly shot by the suspect, Jason Eaton, on Thanksgiving weekend, and the families are calling for him to be charged with a hate crime in addition to the three counts of attempted second-degree murder that he faces now. Out front now, Elizabeth Price, Hisham's mother. And Elizabeth, um, I, I truly can't believe I'm even speaking to you. I'm sure there are moments when you can't believe what has happened to you and to your child. I know you traveled from the West Bank immediately when you got the unbelievable and, and horrible news about your son being shot. You've been with Hisham ever since you arrived in the U.S. What can you share about your time with him these past days? My time with Hisham has been really spent marveling at who he is. He is just a quiet, resilient, um, measured man who has actually spent time with the doctors trying to figure out what's been going on with him and pushing the physiotherapist to try and help him get stronger. He is going to be success, um, but no matter what happens. And 
overcome this, but he's also spent his time thinking about how his life and his injury is, is even with those things, he's in a better place than his compatriots in, in Palestine. So I think his heart has been bleeding for the other Hishams under the bombs of Gaza, as he wrote uh, in a recent statement. I, I understand that doctors have told you that Hisham is paralyzed from the chest down now. Obviously, um, he is young and, and he's going to go to a rehab facility. Have they given you any sense, Elizabeth, of, of whether he might be able to recover and to walk again? Or do they not know? They don't know. Um, but I think really what we've been taking away from this is that that good comes from bad. I mean, Hisham, in a second, had his life overturned and his body broken temporarily, we hope. But he and his friends are energized to keep on going, to continue to work, to create a better dialogue in this country, uh, a dialogue against the dehumanizing language whose only natural conclusion is hateful violence that they've seen. You know, he and his friends, I've seen his friends go back there to their campuses, determined to pay it forward for all the support that they provide to to, to continue telling and, and, and reaching out to others so they can have a dialogue to tell the truth that people are really wanting to hear. Because what we've been hearing from people is they've been reaching out and they've been, you know, they, we have comments coming on our GoFundMe page for Hisham that are just heartbreaking in their compassion, you know, sons of a Holocaust survivor saying that we yeah. stand with Hisham. I've been receiving letters from, from, from Jewish Americans saying this is done not in my name, uh, from Vermont residents saying anything that you need, we will do for you. So people want to come together across divides that don't really exist, but have been shamefully created by an, a media narrative and, and a narrative of our, of our government pol politicians who use reductive binary language that really try and drive people apart, but haven't been successful in this case. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. And I mean, he, Sham's clearly extraordinary that you could have such a young man able to, able to see this the way he sees it. And um, it is truly extraordinary. And thank you for sharing. Is in, I hope much. in everyone's thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And next, an award-winning journalist now missing in China after reporting on sensitive subjects. So what has happened here? And George Santos finding a new way to make money just days after being expelled from Congress. Hey, James and Sophia. Congratulations on your engagement. Tonight, Vanished, an award-winning journalist based in Hong Kong, has gone missing after a reporting trip to Beijing. Journalist Minnie Chan's reporting has tackled sensitive subjects, including the Chinese military and Taiwan. And now her friends and colleagues fear that she may be the latest unexplained disappearance in China. Will Ripley is out front. Intrigue, uncertainty, and one burning question. What happened to Minnie Chan? The Hong Kong journalist on assignment in Beijing last month vanished into thin air. Chan was in the Chinese capital covering a global defense forum. It ended on October 31st. Soon after, she dropped off the radar. Her last report published November 1st. Delving into China's controversial role as mediator in the Gaza conflict, publicly siding with Palestinians over Israel. Radio silence ever since. Friends trying to reach Chan on social media, hitting a brick wall, mounting messages of concern, not a single known reply. 
On November 11th, a mysterious post on Chan's Facebook page. Personal photos followed by a flood of concerned comments. One from a friend and fellow journalist speculating someone else must have posted the pictures. Eerie silence from Chan fueling a frenzy of speculation. She may be under the microscope of Chinese authorities. A veteran reporter, nearly two decades at the South China Morning Post. It's had no direct contact with her. In a statement, the paper says it did speak with Chan's family. Her family told us she's safe, the paper said, writing she's on personal leave in Beijing, handling a private matter. We have no further information to disclose, the family told the paper. Those who know her strongly believe there's more to the story. China's foreign ministry telling reporters they're not aware of the situation. Known for astute coverage of China's defense and diplomacy, Chan interviewed a host of high-ranking Chinese officials, tackling touchy topics like Beijing's military strategy targeting Taiwan. Chan also worked for Apple Daily, raided two years ago by 500 Hong Kong police officers. A government crackdown forced the paper to close. You want people to have the right. I interviewed Jimmy Lai, Apple Daily's billionaire owner, shortly before his arrest, along with other newsroom leaders, later charged under Hong Kong's draconian national security law, which rolled back civil and political freedoms. Drafted in secret, imposed by Beijing's communist rulers, China's heavy-handed response to the fiery pro-democracy protests of 2019. In the years since, a crackdown on pro-democracy figures, the disbanding of political parties and newsrooms, activists forced to choose between a life in prison at home or a life in exile abroad. And now the mystery of Minnie Chan, raising new fears for the safety of reporters. If a seasoned journalist from a mainstream outlet can disappear in Beijing, who's next in line for China's vanishing act? This is not the first veteran journalist to disappear in China. There was an Australian Chinese news anchor named Cheng Lei who was just released after three years in prison. Her crime, she had a briefing with government officials and she broke their embargo by a few minutes. She talked about it on the air a few minutes, a few minutes before she was allowed to. Three years in a tiny cell with the lights on 24-7 and just 10 hours of sunshine a year, Aaron. Wow. Wow. All right. Thank you very much, Will Ripley. Stunning and horrible. Well, next, he was booted from Congress, but now George Santos will record a video just for you for 200 bucks. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.